You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. It is great to see everybody here this morning. People here from all over the place. And Bob, I didn't see you come in. Greetings to you. Nice to have you here. Bob uh, Milliken's here from uh, what is now uh, Papillion, Nebraska. Used to be Norfolk. Uh, used to be, yeah. Anyway, um, to come up to church camp. He's going to be our, you're our Vesper speaker this week? Uh, well, I hope so, yeah. I, it's my week. I guess he does whatever I want him to. So uh, we're glad to have Bob here. Uh, he teaches at Nebraska Christian uh, College there. And uh, we are blessed to have him here. And many other visitors, and I've got family here. It's just good to have everybody here this morning. Please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. There was a trial held in the heart of the South. A prosecuting attorney called his first witness. She was a grandmotherly woman he had known since childhood. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Whitaker, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Coolidge. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit lawyer. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Whitaker, do you know the defense attorney? She again replied, of course I do. I've known Mr. Johnson since he was a youngster too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Yes, I know him. The defense attorney turned red with embarrassment. The judge, upon hearing the questions and answers thus far, asked both counselors to approach the bench. In a very quiet voice, he said... If either of you asks her if she knows me, I'll throw you in jail for contempt. <laughs> yeah. That testimony is powerful, isn't it? And courts couldn't fulfill their functions without witnesses, some kind, to provide testimony. And the purpose of that testimony is, or should be, to establish truth. Okay? That should be the purpose of testimony, to establish truth. Knowing the truth leads then to taking the proper course of action. In a court, that may mean arriving at a verdict of guilty or not guilty, or it may mean finding someone liable or not liable in a certain circumstance. Either way, the consequences can be life-changing. So how important is it for good testimony then that establishes truth? Right? The burden on these witnesses to tell the truth completely and accurately is tremendous, or it should be. Well, as we look at the last section of the first chapter of John's Gospel today, we will encounter some personal testimony that has even more significant impact than that of witnesses in a court of law. Starting with John the Baptist, the people who understood and believed who Jesus is did not keep that knowledge to themselves. But they told others the truth about Jesus. These were the very first disciples of Jesus, starting something that continues yet today. And many of us here 
Many of us here are part of that same group, disciples of Jesus. It is my hope and my prayer that as we look at these first disciples of Jesus today, we will be inspired to follow their example in witnessing about who Jesus is to the people that we encounter every day. Because those people need to know the truth about Jesus. And you may be the only one who will ever communicate that truth to them. Let's look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 35, and take note of what happened when people witnessed about Jesus. Again the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, we don't know how long John the Baptist had been preaching his message of repentance before Jesus came to him to be baptized. We talked about Jesus' baptism a little bit last week. However long it was, in that time, John had started to accumulate disciples, men who stayed with him, who listened to his teaching, who followed him. For them, John was their rabbi, their teacher, their master. Now, we're not told that John actually asked anyone to follow him. It may have just been a consequence of his powerful ministry. I think John was speaking words that were out of character for what most of the rabbis of that day spoke. And he didn't come from the traditional background, and he didn't fit into the traditional mold. And so there were men who had chosen to go out and stay with him and listen to him as he preached his message of repentance. Now, last week, we talked at some length about how John the Baptist never tried to gain attention for himself. John, the writer of this gospel, told us back in verses 6, 7, and 15 that John the Baptist's purpose was to be a witness concerning Jesus Christ. And John fulfilled that role consistently and effectively. And he'd be the first one. Today's message is, is called Witnessing About Jesus. He'd be the first one who bore that testimony but immediately we see him transferring that to someone else. Here in verse 36, As Jesus was passing by, John declared to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. And John had already identified Jesus this way back in verse 29, adding at that point, Who takes away the sin of the world. And the designation, the Lamb of God, this was John's way of declaring Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who would become the sacrifice of atonement for all mankind. Just like they sacrificed a lamb at the Passover every year there in their Jewish culture. And that was the atoning sacrifice, the sin sacrifice. Jesus came to be that sacrifice once for all. In essence, these words of John Behold the Lamb of God, were directed to his disciples, saying, There is the one whom you should follow. As we saw last week, rather than trying to promote himself in any way, John the Baptist humbly told his disciples to follow Jesus instead. And they did. This is a pivotal point 
Because without this, John the Baptist came as the forerunner, preparing the way of the Lord. But without this transfer of focus, without John saying, that's him, go follow him, things could have gotten confusing. Things were a little confusing anyway uh, over a short period of time, but I think they resolved that. But these disciples of John heard his words and followed Jesus. Now, it seems as though there were only two of John's disciples with him when he witnessed that Jesus was the Lamb of God. But they both left John and followed Jesus. I think they understood what John was telling them. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. And here's the thing, and I don't, I don't know that we consider this much. I doubt that this was an easy transition for these two men to make. All right? John apparently had other disciples that evidently did not follow Jesus, at least not right at this time. And I think all those who were John's disciples, I mean, they'd made that choice to go out and stay with him and listen to him and be loyal to him. I, I think that they, they felt that sense of loyalty to John the Baptist. In order to leave him and follow Jesus, they may have had to deal with the feeling that they were deserting John or perhaps betraying him in some way. I mean, he was the one responsible for them to be out there in the first place. But they followed Jesus anyway. Now, I mention this. And by the way, this is one of the difficult things for me, and especially, I think, as we go through the Gospel of John, it's going to be even more difficult than, than some passages, and that's to decide, what sermon am I going to preach out of this passage? I mean, there's, how many could you get out of this one section of verses, right? But as I was looking at this, and I was thinking about this concept of witnessing about Jesus, it, it, it occurred to me, you know, I know people who have come to the point of understanding who Jesus is. They know that they need to follow him, but they're reluctant to do so because they feel like they're deserting their families or deserting their friends if they become a Christian. I mean, some of you, some of you here may have had to deal with this type of situation. And you may have at the time, or you may now, be holding back from becoming a Christian because of it. Well, if I do this, my family won't receive it well. My friends won't receive it well, and so I, I'm hesitating. And those situations exist. Those feelings are real. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the right thing to do based on the facts? If Jesus really is the Son of God, if He really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then isn't the only right course of action to follow Him? Instead of feeling like you're deserting or betraying your family or your friends, know that you may become the source of testimony that will lead them to following Jesus as well. And that's exactly what happened in our passage today. The next thing that we encounter here, let's read on in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and who followed him, that is who followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now of the two mentioned here who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus, only one is identified by name 
for us. The other one may have been speculation arises. The other one may have been John, the writer of this gospel, but we don't really know. What we do know is that Andrew, a fisherman from the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, was one of Jesus' first disciples. First one that we have named as being one who followed him exclusively. Now, Andrew doesn't get a lot of attention in the Gospels, not like some. Uh, In John's Gospel, other than this passage, Andrew is mentioned only twice more. Uh, Most notably, he's the person who brought to Jesus the boy, little boy who had the five loaves and the two fish, right? Jesus used those to feed 5,000 men plus all the women and children that were there. That was Andrew that brought that boy to Jesus. But Andrew had a brother named Simon. They were partners in the fishing fishing business along with the sons of a man named Zebedee, James and John. We know them uh, pretty well from other gospel accounts. It is this John who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, after he decided to follow Jesus, now what's the next thing you do, right? Andrew's first action was to go tell his brother. Now, we can tell that Andrew understood what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Because Andrew told Simon, We have found the Messiah. John, the gospel writer, seems to assume that his readers were unfamiliar with that expression. So he converts the Hebrew word Messiah to the Greek word Christ, both of which mean the anointed one. And in our modern context, you start tossing around words like Messiah and Christ. Most people know that refers to Jesus or that we're referring to Jesus when we use those words. But at that point, it was something that had to be explained. The Messiah was the one that had been promised in the Old Testament. That God said would come, would sit and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. That would come and and take away the sin of the world. Well, when Andrew declared to his brother Simon that Jesus was the Messiah, that's what he was declaring. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And I had to wonder, when when I think about the implications of that, did Andrew know that Jesus was born of a virgin? We have no idea, right? Did Andrew know that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem? I've always wondered, you know, in our modern context, when Jesus came on the scene, he'd have uh, advanced men. John the Baptist would have had bio sheets he could pass out about Jesus and all the prophecies he's fulfilled already. And this is how we know this is the guy. Did Andrew know this? We don't know if Andrew knew that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Did Andrew know that Jesus spent time in Egypt when he was younger? No way to tell. But he accepted John the Baptist's testimony about who Jesus is. And he immediately went and told his brother, Peter, we found the Messiah. Except it wasn't Peter yet. It's Simon. Okay? And Andrew didn't stop there. You know, it could have been, uh, so, you know, if you want to go see him, he's going to be down there at this time. So now I've, I've exercised my responsibility. No, he didn't stop there. He physically brought, and I don't know if this is a struggle or not. I don't think so. But he physically brought his brother Simon to Jesus. I assume Simon wanted to go, right? Either way, the important thing is that Simon came to Jesus. And Andrew was the mechanism through, through whom that took place. Now, apparently, even before Simon said a word to Jesus, Jesus identified him, knew his name, knew his father, and gave him a new name, Cephas. Which, I don't know if you, you guys know anybody named Cephas. We hear Bo Cephas. Do you know any Cephas? 
I don't know anybody named Cephas. It's an Aramaic word that means stone. And John explains that the equivalent Greek word, the one that we know this man best by, Petros, that's the word that we get the name Peter from. And it just means a stone or a piece of rock. And if Andrew is somewhat obscure among the disciples, Peter is exactly the opposite. This is the man who became the spokesman of the twelve apostles in many circumstances. In the places where we have lists of the disciples, Peter's always listed first. He's one of only three disciples present at the transfiguration of Jesus when Moses and Elijah appeared there with Jesus on the mountain. Uh, one of only three who was there at the healing of Jairus' daughter. He was one of only three that Jesus asked to accompany him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went off by himself to pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Peter delivered the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. He was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He was the first point of contact for the gospel message to the Gentile people. This is Peter. All that because Andrew was a faithful witness about who Jesus is. You think about Andrew's role. All those things Peter did. Great, great. Let's, let's laud Peter to the skies, but let's remember Andrew's part in introducing him to Jesus in the first place. Let's go on to verse 43. This is talking about Jesus. It says, The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And I wonder, Jesus shows up, he finds Philip. Philip, up to this point, has not been mentioned. Now maybe... He's another candidate for this other disciple that was there when John was speaking, but I don't know. We don't really know uh, where he came from in this narrative. And I have, have to ask the question, why did he follow? When Jesus says, Philip, follow me, why did he go? Well, John gives us a clue by telling us that Philip lived in the same town as Andrew and Peter. And we can't be certain about this. We have no way to know. But it's possible that Andrew and Peter witnessed to Philip about Jesus. He knew, he came to know him somehow. He came to accept him and believe in him somehow. And that's the typical mechanism is that someone tells somebody else. That's why we're talking about this today. Now, whatever happened to get Philip to that point, immediately he goes and finds another man. We, we don't know of any biological relationship between Philip and Nathaniel. We don't even know much else about Nathaniel at all other than what is recorded here. Uh, if this is the same Nathaniel that is mentioned in John 21 2, then Nathaniel was originally from Cana in Galilee. Cana is only about four miles from Nazareth. These were practically neighbors out there. Bethsaida, on the other hand, is about 25 miles north uh, and east of Nazareth. Uh, and Cana is, is uh, I remember if the, Cana is between them. Cana is just a, a little bit north and east of Nazareth. Okay, So it's possible for Philip and, and Nathaniel, it's possible that both of these men had heard about Jesus before. Here's how, why I think that. When Philip 
tells Nathanael about Jesus, he describes him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, to us today, that might not be descriptive enough. Uh, I know, know some folks from uh, back near where Pete and Mary Lee uh, come from. And there's a fellow down there that's got, I don't know, it's a hardware store or a farm implement place or something. And they call him Phil on the Hill, right? You know, Phil on the Hill. That's his name, apparently. It's not really his name. His name's Phil, but, you know, Phil on the Hill, and that's how everybody knows him, right? Well, this, this is how they identified Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Philip tells him this, but he tells him more. This, I think, is more important than that identification. He, when he witnesses to Nathaniel about Jesus, he tells him that Jesus is the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote, which tells you something about Philip's level of faith, Philip's level of understanding at this point. Philip recognized that Jesus was the one who fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, all the things that we talked about. And that's great. And so far we've had people telling others about Jesus and they immediately go and follow him and people being called to follow Jesus and they immediately go to follow him and Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus and Nathaniel is skeptical about Philip's claims concerning Jesus. And he raises this objection. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now we don't know all the reasons for his statement there. Perhaps... Perhaps Nazareth was the black sheep of towns in Galilee from the wrong side of the ridge or something, whatever. I don't know. Maybe Nathaniel was referring to the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. How, it can't be the Messiah. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Those prophecies are clear. And of course, Nathaniel probably didn't know the details of Jesus' birth. But either way, here's the thing. He was skeptical. He was resistant to Philip's witness about Jesus. This is the first time we've had this. And I know all this is happening pretty quickly. But doesn't that fit more along the lines with what you expect when you tell people about Jesus, right? So Nathaniel was resistant, so Philip gave up and went home. Is that what he did? No, he didn't. He didn't. Philip said... Come and see. He didn't stop. He didn't say, okay, Nathaniel, you don't want to believe? Fine, you just go your own way and do your own thing. I tried. I gave it my best shot, but there it is. He said, come and see. He appealed to him to at least make an effort. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Here I am, your friend, making this claim to you. At least give me the benefit of honoring our friendship or honoring our relationship and examine this. Philip didn't give up. I, I think all of us Christians who have tried to witness to others about Jesus have encountered a skeptic or two along the way. And you have that same choice. You have that same choice that Philip had. You can give up. You can say, hey, I tried. Or you can persevere, knowing that if you can just get past that initial skepticism, or maybe it's very deeply entrenched skepticism, as it sometimes is, maybe the person to whom you're witnessing will come to the point of having a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, Philip didn't let Nathaniel's skepticism or initial rejection keep him from continuing to witness to him about Jesus. I think there's something in there for us. Let's go on to verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, 
how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, when Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, Jesus identified him by name. When Philip brought Nathanael to Jesus, Jesus identified him by character. Now, you might, uh, Nate's not here, my son Nate's not here, so I can tell you this about him. Um, uh, We spell his name, N-A-T-H-A-N-A-E-L, just like the Nathanael of this passage, because the statement that Jesus makes about this Nathanael is a statement I want to be able to be made about my son Nate. Someone in whom there's no deceit. And uh, I'm not going to go off on, on my own son. You'd, you'd just discount that as dad bragging about his kids, and maybe that would be true, but I sure like him. Okay? <laughs> this statement that Jesus makes about Nathaniel might seem a bit cryptic to us. It probably made more sense to Nathaniel coming out of that culture and with that history. Jesus referred to Nathaniel as an Israelite which would literally mean a descendant of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, I tend not to think of Israel as a person. I think of them as a nation. But Israel was a person. We, you, you know who he was. You probably know him better by his other name, Jacob. Jacob, the younger of twin sons born to Isaac and Rebekah. And he lived a life sometimes characterized by trickery or deceit. Matter of fact, that name, Jacob, by some accounts, some people's uh, uh, translation of it or or interpretation of it, it means trickster or supplanter, heel grabber, because he came out, uh, was born holding on to his brother's heel. Jacob took advantage of his brother Esau's hunger and traded him out of his birthright. Maybe that was an unfair thing to do. He plotted with his mother to deceive his father in order to gain the blessing reserved for the firstborn, the blessing that Esau should have gotten. That was a wrong thing to do, but God knew it was going to happen and planned for that in advance. But the point is, Jacob was no stranger to deceit. But one night, Jacob had an encounter with someone who some believe was an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. At that meeting, Jacob was given the name Israel, which might mean prince with God or possibly God strives, maybe even God's governor. There's a lot of different ideas about what the name Israel means. The main thing to remember is that God changed Jacob's name to mean something much more respectable than trickster or supplanter. And you you ever notice that when God gives somebody a new name, he gives them something to live up to? That's usually the way that works. He gives them a new name. gave Peter... Simon was his name. He gave him the, the name Rock. Because while he was kind of flighty and, you know, a little impetuous, okay, a lot impetuous and, and prone to run off at the mouth and say, you know, speak before he thought, Peter would become a solid and stable individual, one that would carry the church, start the church even, in its beginning and carry it forward with the stability and organization that it needed. I mean, Peter 
met the occasion of, of Jesus changing his name. Well, God gave Jacob a new name for him to live up to, something better. And so Jesus' statement to Nathaniel, when he is almost a play on words, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So, you know, even though Jacob was, his life was kind of characterized by that, and his name became Israel, here's Nathaniel, who is truly the kind of Israelite, has the heart of the person that God is looking for. And Jesus knew Nathaniel's heart. Nathaniel is very much one of the honestly faithful descendants of Jacob. In spite of his skepticism, that is Nathaniel's skepticism, Jesus saw Nathaniel as a true worshiper of God. And so, what did he do? Well, his first response is he's confused. He wonders how Jesus could possibly know anything about him. The explanation Jesus gives from a purely rational, non-faith point of view doesn't make any sense. Okay? How do you know anything about me? He said, well, Jesus said, I, I saw you under that fig tree before Philip spoke to you over there. Okay? That doesn't, that doesn't say much. I think we'd probably prefer to be said a little more plainly. I think Nathaniel understood that Jesus was saying that he knew Nathaniel. He knew who he was. He knew what he was like before they ever met. And apparently Nathaniel didn't disagree with Jesus' assessment. He didn't say, oh no, that's, that's not really me. You must be talking about somebody else. He agreed because he, that was the kind of man he tried to be. And here Jesus is recognizing that in him. I think that's a, a beautiful thing. Nathaniel is convinced enough to declare that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. This process that he went through went past his skepticism and brought him completely over into the camp of faith. And he believes. He believes everything he's been told about Jesus and he says it with conviction. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And of course, both of those designations had to do with Jesus as the Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. In short, Nathanael believed in Jesus and he witnessed about him, even if Jesus was the first one that he said anything to. Now speaking, that's probably the best thing to do, isn't it? If you're going to come to have faith in Jesus, you might want to tell him about that, right? Okay, don't just keep it to yourself and, and hope he finds out some way. Uh, tell him, tell him that you believe. Now, in what is almost certainly another reference to an event in the life of Jacob, Jesus tells Nathanael that he would see greater things from Jesus, greater than the relatively simple thing of knowing Nathanael before actually meeting him. And that event in Jacob's life comes from Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob had a dream in which he saw a ladder with angels ascending and descending on it. At that place, God promised to be with Jacob, promised to bring him back safely to the land of Canaan. And Jacob named the place. They were fond of doing that in those days. He named it Bethel, which is house of God. Jesus seems to be claiming that same protection of God for himself now in that you will see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. But what are these greater things? He says, you shall see greater things than this. You were impressed because I knew you before I ever spoke to you, but you're going to see more than that, Nathaniel. What are those things? Well, in the college press, uh, NIV commentary on John, the authors there say that Jesus was probably referring to these things, probably his revelations, that is, his teachings, okay, about 
God and God's desire for man and, and all the things that, that Jesus would have to say. His miracles, which certainly will be uh, some of the things that are given to convince people and persuade them that the message that Jesus spoke came from God and that it was true. His perfect life, that kind of perfection that we, I don't know about you, I take that for granted in Jesus' life. I should be much more amazed by that than I am. I should be much more, Rick was talking about awe this morning. I should have a much greater awe about that than I do sometimes. The perfection of Jesus' life. Certainly his death and resurrection. I mean, you might say, well, his death wouldn't be such a great thing. You stop and examine it. And when we get to that part, you know, almost half of John's gospel is devoted to the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to be talking about it a lot. And when we get to that, I hope that you will see the amazing things that were involved, not just in the resurrection. Yes, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's the, the thing that caps it all off. But the, his crucifixion and the way that he conducted himself, the things that he said, the things that other people said, it's amazing. And of course, his gospel, because he came and he brought a message of life. Under the law, we find in the rest of the New Testament, and it's very clear, under the law we're condemned. Under the law, not one of us makes it. Under the law, every one of us is lost because every one of us has broken at least one. And, of course, we know there's more of the commandments, the desires of God. But Jesus brought the good news of the gospel, life in spite of sin. And, of course, his second coming. And Nathaniel will witness that, I'm convinced. We've been talking about it when we studied Revelation. Nathaniel is going to be one of those who witnesses that event. That Jesus knew all about Nathaniel before they met, that was nothing compared to what Nathaniel would witness in the days, months, and years ahead. And Jesus would live up to Nathaniel's statement You are the Son of God. Now, I started this morning by saying that I hoped. The examples of witnessing about Jesus that we find in this passage would inspire us to witness about Jesus in various ways in our own lives. And so here are a few principles that we found in the passage that we studied today. And the the first is to be faithful to the truth. We talked about the two disciples leaving John the Baptist and following Jesus. And these two are a wonderful example of being faithful to the truth. Andrew and this other disciple, I think likely, but I'm, I'm speculating that, so I won't say it that way. They may have had emotional ties to John the Baptist. But the truth was that they needed to follow Jesus regardless. It might be difficult to follow Jesus or to make that decision if your family and your friends don't. But it's still the right thing to do. And you may be the only gospel that others read. What would have happened if Andrew hadn't told Simon Peter about Jesus? Now, we can't ever really know. But we do know that Andrew did witness to his brother about Jesus. And we know everything that Peter did after that. Well, not everything, but we know what the scriptures record. And there's enough there for us to be impressed by that. The difference that knowing Jesus made in Peter's life. Kendall Holmes, preacher at Valley Christian Church in Billings. He's also going to be at our church camp this week. He once said in a message at the camp that I was listening to, he said, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And you may be the only Gospel that some people will ever read. 
Now, whether it's your family members or your friends or someone else, don't hesitate to witness to them about who Jesus is because they need to know him just as much as you do. The third thing is that skepticism of others is not a reason to give up. Nathaniel didn't respond well to Philip's assertion that Jesus was the Messiah written about in the Old Testament. And Philip could easily have gotten discouraged and given up on Nathaniel. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I, I can be, if I let myself, I can be discouraged fairly easily. Did you notice, though? Did you notice in the account here, it only took three more words for Philip to convince Nathaniel to at least go and see Jesus for himself. Just at least as far as we have recorded, there were only three more words spoken by Philip. Come and see. That's all it took. Is there someone who has rejected your witness about Jesus up to this point? You have no way of knowing how close he or she is to finally responding to the good news about Jesus that you're sharing. Don't give up. Don't give up. And the fourth thing we saw here is that Jesus is the attraction, not you. In the end, it wasn't Philip that caused Nathaniel to believe in Jesus. And if, if I could just talk somebody into believing in Jesus on the basis of my uh, line of reasoning, if I could just persuade you, if I could be that powerful in speech, that you would believe Jesus just simply on my say-so without any other evidence, I think we've got a little bit of a problem here because you're not really putting your faith in Jesus. You're putting your faith in me, and I don't want that. It was Jesus who caused Nathaniel to believe in Jesus. And for the Christians here, we are called to witness about Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples, You shall be my witnesses. The word from Greek is the same word we get uh, martyrs from, by the way. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Whose message is it? Because if it's your message, you're saying the wrong thing. Whose message is it? Well, it's Jesus' message. Who is the focus of the message? Jesus is the focus of the message. Who do people need in order to be saved? People need Jesus in order to be saved. They don't need me. Oh, I might be the one through whom they hear at first, but it's not about me. It's not even my message, and it's certainly not me they need to believe in. People need Jesus in order to be saved. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And if you're not a Christian yet, if you're not a Christian yet, I want to ask you if the testimonies of John the Baptist, of Andrew, of Philip, and of Nathaniel, and even the response of Jesus knowing about Simon, Jesus knowing about Nathaniel, have those things spoken to you about who Jesus is? Are you hearing the same things from Christians that you know? And I hope you know some, and I hope that they're telling you. If you're not a Christian today, I hope that there are Christians in your life telling you about who Jesus is. Are you ready to accept Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Are you ready to accept Jesus 
as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. From whatever source, if the witness you have heard about Jesus Christ is speaking to you, calling you to respond, I'd like to invite you to do that here today. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that He's the Savior, the Son of the living God, if you want to receive Him,